You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I'm very uh, happy that the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute has agreed to host us for this conversation uh, with Jim Hicks, who I'm very happy to join us here from Massachusetts, uh, the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, as you might have seen in the invitation to the event, Jim Hicks is a senior lecturer in the Comparative Literature Program uh, at UMass Amherst, as well as an executive, uh, the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. His research, his teaching um, interests include cultural studies, representations of war, and comparative studies, as well as modernist narrative and literary theory. He has studied in France, lectured in Italy, taught in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is obviously very close to the topic of today's discussion. Um, <clears throat> he is also a literary translator. His translations include short pieces by Italo Calvino, Ananda Devi, Juan José Saer, Izet Saralic, and longer works by Eri Luca and Federica Marzi. His uh, Lessons from Sarajevo, War Stories Primer, was published by the University Press, uh, uh, University of Massachusetts Press in 2013. Um, so this is, this is the bio, and I kind of want to start with a question related to this, which is a question about your general trajectory. You started with an academic work, uh, with a dissertation on how contemporary fiction re repeats the gestures of the sentimental novel, essentially. Um, <clears throat> you then you know, started working um, in, in the discipline and went on a Fulbright study to Sarajevo, which, where you worked as a professor of English, but it's also a place where you forge connections that made you come back to the city uh, several times um, and also pushed you, I understand, towards uh, the research project that ended up being your book, which is uh, the ways we tell war stories and, and, and sort of uh, the, the area of memory studies more generally. Um, you also, in the last 10 years, have uh, moved towards literary translation, so translation from Italian and the language known as Bosnian, uh, Croatian, Serbian, BCS. Um, and on top of all that, today you're coming with a project of creative writing, which you're going to read from shortly. But before you do, I wanted you to just say briefly how you see your trajectory and whether the issue of narrative and storytelling is some sort of a common thread that you see there in hindsight. Great. Well, uh, first, just thanks, thanks to you, Krish. Uh, for, uh, for the invite, and thanks to Trinity College, of course, for, for hosting the event. Um, the short answer is, is yes. Um, I've, uh, I've always been interested. I'm you know, one of those kids that, uh, that read a book a day for many years, um, and perhaps have always you know, seen the world through the lens of, of storytelling. Um, so in some sense, it's uh, I think just natural that uh, that, um, that if there is a through line to the, the somewhat uh, disparate activities I've been nefariously involved in over the years, um, it would be um, thinking through the the functions and the um, ap applicability of of narrative to the world around us. Um, Perhaps it's also, in some sense, a uh, you know an indication of, of the uh, the uh, stubbornness or or uh, single-mindedness of, of many scholars that uh, that I took something that that I worked on and worked through for my PhD, and then um, 
applied it uh, uh, rather re- relentlessly to the to the topic of the book that you mentioned, uh, the uh, the study of the representation of war and uh, in lessons from Sarajevo. Um, but uh, but yeah, and uh, and the the more recent turn in some sense has simply become come out of uh, the practical necessity of trying to put out a magazine four times a year. But, uh, but when I got um, anointed or conned into uh, being the, uh, the editor of the Massachusetts Review, um, I really had two goals from the start. One was simply to, to do what I could to get back some of the political energy that this magazine had um, in its, its early years in the 60s and 70s. And it really was one of the first literary magazines that published black arts writers and black power writers. And, uh, and uh, kind of caught the wave of women's lib, uh, the women's lib movement in the 70s. And I wanted to get back that political energy. And at the time, sort of the, you know, not long after the Bush the regime, the second Bush regime, um, I thought that one of the ways that we needed to do that in the States was to publish as much in translation as we possibly could um, and internationalize in any way we could simply because the, the stunning parochialism of, of most people in my home country seemed to me evident and obviously a literary magazine isn't going to change that but, uh, but you might as well take a step or two in the right direction. So, uh, so we, we did, um, I think, succeed at least by, by US standards uh, in publishing much more in translation than is normally the case. Um, probably roughly 20 to 25 percent over the years. And now I've been doing it over, uh, over 12 or 13 years now. So, so. But, uh, but at that time, uh, one of the ways I, I wanted to, to let people know we were serious about it is I started translating um, myself. Um, and doing, uh, doing more of that. In fact, I think in the first issue um, that, uh, that we published that I edited, there's also a translation by me, perhaps a completely illegitimate one, in that it's a translation from, uh, from Spanish, which is definitely not my, uh, my, it's probably my fourth language rather than second. Yeah. So, so yeah. And so what is the... Pl- in, in all that, what is the place for, of the, the newest project, the creative writing uh, mm-hmm. practice that you started engaging in, mm-hmm. that you want to read it from? Yeah, the, um, actually, yeah, I'm going to read, um, take, I think, about 12 minutes. Um, and it's a, um, it's a project that, uh, that I started, actually, decades ago. Um, the first trip to, to Sarajevo and uh, the year that I taught there as a Fulbright scholar, I was impressed with this sense of, of living with different communities in different ways. Um, I felt like, in some sense, the city at that time, um, the so-called international community was obviously very present, still is, but to a less degree. Um, and I felt like there were almost kind of two worlds there. There were the so-called um, internationals and, uh, and also the so-called locals, even though sometimes the locals had you know, more international experience than the internationals did. 
Um, I was in places where there would be almost exclusively one of those two populations um, and, uh, and really didn't see all that many places where the two mixed. And, uh, but one of the obvious borderlines of that sort of two worlds culture um, were interpreters and translators. Um, one of the things that I was impressed by was the, uh, the ability, the knowledge, the experience of, of that community, the interpreters and translators. But I also thought, why isn't anybody talking to these people? So uh, one of the things about being trained in comparative literature, I think, is that you, um, you end up, uh, I always call it, it's the discipline that has no discipline. Um, and uh, one of the things you do learn to do is, is to take on challenges and try to do things that perhaps you're not as well trained as you might be if that was your primary field. In this case, I decided that somebody should, in fact, talk to the interpreters. Um, so I started a series of interviews. And uh, I think the first round of them I did probably 15 or so. Um, and then a decade later, I went back and found most of those people and translated or in, interviewed them a second time. And, uh, and, and then couldn't find all of them and added a few more. So, so there's really two sets of, of interviews that, uh, that I haven't done all that much with. Um, lately, in part because of the work I've been doing in translating, and in particular, a novel that I recently translated by a, um, a young Italian writer. Um, in fact, it's her first novel. Her name's Federica Marzi. It's uh, briefly the story of two generations of refugees in Trieste. And uh, in a sense, I started thinking a lot about, uh, about the potential uses and even policy implications of fiction um, for telling history. And uh, so I started thinking about this set of interviews that I'd you know, written about a bit, I'd done some conference papers, but never really, you know, no book came from it, and I'd always thought there ought to have be, been one, and I feel an obligation to the people that I've interviewed. Um, now the idea that I have is to go back and to take the material from the interviews and in some sense use them as the, the primary material for, for um, simply, bluntly said, fictive uh, retellings of, of, uh, of what they've told me. So, should I? Why don't Can I then, a, a, yeah. try a, a, a taste of, of, of that fictive retelling? Right, so this is the first attempt to do that with one of the interviewees. And uh, as I said, it's fairly short. It should be about 12 minutes long. But, uh, but anyway, it'll give you a taste of it. Um, the working title for this is An American in Srebrenica. It didn't have to be that way. Now, years later, whenever Alex thought back to that disastrous day, she laughed to herself, ruefully. And she'd think, well, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. 
And who knows how many years of my life that took. They put the president up on a rostrum, way up there, and the interpreter way over there on the ground with a microphone, at least 15 feet away and behind. As soon as Alex saw that, she didn't like it. Clinton had been invited to open the dedication of the Srebrenica Memorial in Potocai on September 20th, 2003. And it was a big thing, obviously, prepared in advance, months in advance. Alex never knew exactly how it happened that an interpreter from the office of the high representative had been asked to interpret because it was an American thing and everything was organized in the American embassy. OHR had always implied it should be interpreted by the American embassy interpreter. And then a week or so in advance, they said they wanted the OHR interpreter. Because OHR had been working on Srebrenica because they had a lot of experience, that sort of thing. It had definitely not been her decision. Somebody decided that an OHR interpreter would do it and it fell on her. They told her that she would do it. You're just a piece of furniture that does the job. And as soon as the job is done, they discard you. If you look at it objectively, it shouldn't have been that big a deal. After all, she'd done similar things before. They speak, you translate. What could they say that you couldn't say? You repeat after them in the local language. So it shouldn't have been a big deal, except for the solemnity of the occasion and the seriousness of everything going on in those years. But as the event got closer, whenever she tried to see how it would go, what the president would say, and how it would be organized, she found out she couldn't get anything. Okay, uh, we'll probably get the speech a couple of days before, so you'll be fine, don't worry. And then a couple of days before the speech, the Americans are still not giving us anything. They're probably still working, preparing the speech, and so on. She had to go through the proper channels. Her supervisor at the OHR had to contact the American staff, that sort of thing. Then it was the day before the event. So she asked again, nothing yet. They'll send something soon. By that time, Alex was really, really frustrated. She thought back on her days in Vitesse during the war, when it was never like this. With Umprefor, they were all people doing the same job together. She went around with them everywhere, in Vitesse, Travnik, Zenica, all of central Bosnia. They talked for hours. Maybe it was because she and the British soldiers had been more or less the same age, but it was a different dynamic. Everyone's job was easier. Not long ago, the captain who'd given her the first job invited her to come to London for a birthday party. He was turning 50. At last, it was the day of the event. They still didn't give her anything. The time had inevitably come, and there she was. She was going to Srebrenica, and she had absolutely nothing, nothing in writing. Nobody told her even the rough outline of what she was going to do that day. She said to herself, okay, fine. A speech like any other speech. You'll be fine. Don't worry. But the people who organized everything made such incredible mistakes, especially with placement. She knew from experience, if you're even a couple meters away, 
You can't hear very well. If Alex had been next to Clinton, even a meter away, she could have leaned over to hear. But it was maybe five meters, and it was in the open air, not in a room. And to make matters worse, behind her there was a fountain with water pouring out. The newspaper said there were 20,000 people there. In front, it was all diplomats, black suits. The president began speaking, and Alex stood there with no speech to look at, with nothing. God help her. It was a big mistake, really, theirs. It was a fiasco. President Clinton began speaking very softly, solemnly. He wanted to make an impression. As he spoke, he turned his head from left to right. He was a good speaker, obviously. We all know that. He knew what she was doing. He wanted to conclude. He knew what he was doing. He wanted to include the entire audience in his words. And every time Clinton turned away, Alex lost it completely. She understood none of it. What he got was, here we are, gathered here together, then yada yada, as the sound trailed off, then to find yada and the sound trailed off again. Alex would always remember, if you stand behind loudspeakers, you can't rely on them. They're built to project sound in only one direction. In this case, the sound also reverberated in the distance, so Alex just got echo. She could hear everything, but she couldn't understand anything because it was reverberating. The words were lost in the wind. She was far away, and the fountain was gurgling behind her. Everyone was standing still, and Alex was there in the back, frozen. The only sound she received came as echoes. We will ensure, sure, sure, will these, 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 crimes, crimes, crimes. You can't translate that. She did what she could. She translated what she did hear, maybe even sometimes what she didn't hear, modified by what the president was probably saying. Or she just admit, omitted what she couldn't hear. And it continued and continued like that. It was torture, really. Of course, Alex's family was watching on television. If you were watching it on television, you could hear Clinton perfectly. You had perfect sound, and you didn't know what the problem was. Alex's partner kept saying out loud, what is she doing? I can translate this. Why isn't she translating that? Why is she keeping silent? She can do this. Later, Alex heard what the president had said, the children, Later, Alex heard that the president had said, the children are taught to hate. She only heard, the children are, 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 so she skipped that sentence altogether. What else could she do? And Clinton said other things like, we must never forget. But if you don't hear that, you can't say it. The Bosnians were watching, and they were wondering. If they didn't, if they didn't know English, what they heard made no sense. And if they did know English, they wondered, why can't she translate that? Can't she even translate? We can't forget. When President Clinton finished, Alex knew what had happened she, because everyone avoided her looking her in the eyes. Some people did come up and ask, what was wrong? What happened? Something was wrong. Why couldn't you translate it? But nobody actually understood on their own, not without being told what the problem was. If Alex had had the speech in front of her, 
she probably could have followed along. Whatever she didn't hear, she would have seen on the paper. So everything would have been fine. But they didn't want to give her that speech. She didn't know why. Aren't they aware that whatever they say goes through the interpreter? That what people hear is what the interpreter says? The humiliation cost her two years of her life. During the days before, it had been dreadful, and afterwards she didn't sleep for nights. She kept waking up, reliving every minute, moment of it. It was traumatic. More than anything, it was humiliating. The people she saw on the street didn't know what caused it. And some of those things, and some of those that did know, told her, you know, you really could have handled things differently. Why didn't you take the microphone and walk up to him? And Alex did wonder, why didn't she? She still doesn't know. Everything was frozen in time. If she had walked up to him, she probably would have been tackled by the Secret Service. They would have thought she was doing something inappropriate, something dangerous. Someone else told her that she should have just stopped translating, walked away from the microphone and ended it altogether. The English would have been broadcast and that would have been it. But how could she have done that? Clinton probably would have stopped too, waiting for her to translate. Alex laughed to herself. Clinton actually had stopped. He had been clearly been aware of the interpreter because he'd say a sentence or two and then stop. He would stop and wait for Alex to translate. But he wasn't aware that Alex couldn't hear. For an interpreter, it was the worst nightmare. And to make, them, make it even worse, the next day, there were the papers. One journalist wrote, it should be investigated. We need to know who paid her to spoil the ceremony. She must have been paid by her enemies. They also emphasized her name, questioning her loyalty, her motives. At the time, Alex commented to her supervisor, yeah, sure, I was paid to kill myself there in front of 20,000 people. Several papers wrote about it, judging her, condemning what happened. None of them, though, thought it was important enough to come to Alex and ask what had happened. Don't journalists look for sources, go to the site, find the facts? Maybe not, not when you want to make a sensation. So that's what happened. Patty Ashton was a high representative. When Alex spoke with him, the British MP understood. After all, he'd once been a boy with an Irish accent in an English boarding school. That's where he got his nickname. Ashton also spoke with the people who were standing near Alex. The Reis, the Bosnian Muslim religious leader, helped most. He told Patty that he'd been standing right behind Clinton and couldn't follow half of what was said. He spoke so softly, so silently. But when you make a speech in the open air, you tend to be loud. Um, Clinton wanted to make an impression, and he was unaware of what was going on. Maybe it served him right. The following year, Alex's supervisor asked her to do it again. She laughed and said, no, please. But he insisted, and he was probably right. She needed to prove it to herself and to everyone else that she could do it, 
that she had the proper arrangements. The following year, on the Shorbanitsa anniversary, Petty Ashdod was the speaker. And Alex had the speech ahead of time, and she translated it carefully, as you really should on such occasions. The two of them stood next to each other. Ashdod said his bit, then Alex said her bit. Alex even took her time. Because it was already translated, she didn't have to think about it on the spot. She didn't have to scramble to find proper phrasing. Instead, she could read it. So she had the time to read it nicely, properly, and giving it the proper solemn sound it should have. And it all came out nicely, first one language, then the other, and both sounded very nice. That's how you do it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I have maybe two questions about the text itself, and we'll open up to questions shortly, too, so I'm sure there'll be more questions. Um, one is just about the working title, uh, because the story, there's a lot of issues of visibility versus being heard or being spoken to or not being spoken to, kind of bouncing off all the time. Hmm. Um, but who is the American in Srebrenica? Um, obviously, on one level, President Clinton, but... Um, you know, do you, do you kind of see yourself in that position? Is this, um, is this why you call the story that as well? Because arguably, Clinton's not even the protagonist of the story, right? So mm. could you tell more, us more about that title? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if that's gonna be the title in the end. Obviously, it's, a, it's also just a, a silly play on, you know, an American in Paris or an American here or there. But, uh, but I think uh, as much as anything I was thinking of the way in which, um, I mean, the Americans, in some sense, did take a leading role in those post-war years, um, and there were lots of references, um, particularly to some of the people involved, um, um, lots of references to cowboys, right? and uh, and again, it's it's like what I was saying about the about the goals for the Massachusetts Review. Um, the, the lack of knowledge, the provincialism, the lack of real understanding of context and history um, allows a certain level of action, but it's also a real level of abuse, of violence. And uh, so in some sense, that's what I was trying to get at. Um, the fact that in some sense it's an indirect reference to me as well, I hadn't thought about it, um, I probably should. It certainly is something I think about all the time. Um, and uh, and even with the, with the project, um, I mean, my role was different than, um, oh, I should probably say that part of the reason that I was there in the first place is I just went to visit my sister. Um, she was working in Zagreb for the UN at the end of the war and, uh, and helped set up this office of the high representative. They had a, um, four divisions, the political, economic, legal, and human rights. And the addition of that last uh, wing of the office was basically her idea. She wrote a memo and uh, the first high representative liked the idea and uh, so she set up that part of the office. So I went there to visit my sister and then I just kept going back. So um, 
my role when I was there, though, was was really different. And part of that thinking about the two worlds um, in a kind of odd ethnography based on interviews of of, uh, of interpreters came from that. The fact that I was teaching at the university meant I was spending most of my time with, with Sarajevans. Um, and uh, that was really different than the world that, uh, that my sister was involved in. Um, so it, uh, it positioned me differently in some way. Right. Um, I'm not quite ready to let go of that uh, topic of your, your role, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, because you called this fictive retellings mm -hmm. just before reading this to us. And in an earlier draft of the description of this event, you suggested the term um, hypothetical focalization which we scrapped because it doesn't make for a nice title to <laughs> circulate in emails, but it is an important term that's proposed by David Herman, who's also a, a colleague, graduate colleague and friend of yours, right? Mm -hmm. Who coined this term for as, quote, the use of hypotheses framed by the narrator or a character about what might be or have, have been seen, seen or perceived if only there were someone who could have adopted the requisite perspective of the situation and event at issue. So in short, it's sort of a, a fiction within fiction on the narrative level, mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, what are the ethics of employing hypothetical focalization in a project like yours? Yeah. As an American in Srebrenica, if you, you know, allow me to, to call you that right. temporarily. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and it's, it's absolutely central. Um, yeah, part of, uh, you know, having training in comparative literature is also learning lots of fancy jargon and, and inflicting it on other people. And, you know, nothing sounds more technical, jargon-esque than hypothetical focalization. But, uh, but I do think it's an interest, it's a useful term in that, and one of the reasons it's, it's for me come to the surface in recent years is that I've actually, I mean, I've even thought of take, uh, teaching a whole course um, in novels that employ hypothetical focalization because it's actually if you think about it and, and probably some of you or maybe everybody has has come across an example of this um, the easiest one for me to think of at the moment is Leila Leilami's The Moors account where it's revisiting and rethinking the history of the colonial um, invasion of the Americas and specifically the um, the the uh, the account that's given to us through the documents that recorded the uh, the travels of somebody who's usually just called Cabeza de Vaca, um, a, a Spanish colonialist, um, and uh, and they know that that he was accompanied by a Moor, a slave, but they don't know anything else about, it, right? I mean. There's no other documents than the fact that he, or that he was mentioned as being present in these travels a couple of times. So Leila Elami decided she would write a novel from the point of view of this character who's only hypothetical, right? In order to look at and see the history from a different light. So, uh, and, and this is something that I, I think uh, a lot of writers are doing. You know, where the documents end, and yet we know the history is real, maybe fiction, in some sense, is um, necessary. And, uh, and 
um, can, in some sense, help us to think through that history in a different sense. Um, so, so yeah, um, the other side of it for me, too, is, um, is as I mentioned, uh, I've just got done translating a novel by an Italian writer, Federica Marzi, that tells the story of, of two generations of refugees. One, the, the refugees from a, a, a town in Istria that uh, was, um, when they finally decided um, which countries were going to run which areas, went to um, the then Yugoslavia, and a lot of um, people left the town and went to Trieste uh, or to Italy um, and elsewhere as well, like Australia, um, as a uh, because they didn't want to live in in uh, in Yugoslavia. And uh, so there's a, an older woman in the novel that's from that generation, and and she needs help because she's getting on in years, and she hires. Um, a woman, uh, a younger woman, whose family came to Trieste after the war in Bosnia. So, so again, two generations of, of refugees. But what interests me about this novel in particular, and part of the reason I decided to take it on as a project, is clearly what she's trying to do, and I think really does masterfully, is to tell a story of fictive characters that gives us a kind of micro-history that lets us perceive this actual history in a way we, we just don't get through, um, through traditional history. Yeah. So, um, way back at the beginning, there was also a question about the ethics of doing such a, such a thing. Um, particularly here, right? Um, I've got these interviews. Um, I don't know if anybody would publish them just as they are. Perhaps they would. So why do what I did with this um, with this piece, which is now clearly it's a it's a nice story, right? I mean, it has a nice ending. Even you wouldn't think you know a happy ending in a story like this is. But uh, for me, it's it's the same sort of thing. What what really impressed me particularly as you work through it line by line, word by word, idea by idea, with Federica Marzi's novel, is the way in which, and she uses a kind of, of, of um, you know, free and direct discourse, where you're outside the head of the narrator, um, looking at the world as it is, but then sometimes you're inside too, and you slip back and forth between those. So it's a kind of unstable, but I think really important way of telling a story because, as I said, I think it gives you a different sense of the historical reality than you would get any other way. And in some sense, since you're getting it from inside and outside, you're getting it as a totality that you might not get other words. Um, what I did with, with the interview was really just transpose or translate the interview into something I think which is 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 not even technically speaking uh, free indirect discourse it's it's freer than that and uh, you'll you'll have heard a bunch of, of second person you do this you do that um, 
there are indications at some point where it really is directly reported speech too. So I don't know what I'll call it. Um, very freely, um, <laughs> uh, very freely uh, directed discourse, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but what's the ethics of doing that? Um, at some level, it's cultural appropriation, right? Um, this old straight white guy from the U.S. is is taking texts that uh, you know the words of other people and going to republish them with my name on it. Um, you know. Obviously, the one thing I don't want to do is profit from, make a reputation by um, the experience, the trauma, the work of other people. Um, I think the ethics of that are, are so clear that, uh, that they're unmistakable and, and absolutely essential. But I also think that you can be in a position to amplify, um, to connect, um, to make known history and stories that aren't being heard. So to some extent, I mean, I see myself as more the editor than the writer of, of this work, even if it is in some sense transposition or, or translation within the language. What is interesting, I think, in your answer now, and even before, you kind of oscillate around this idea of fiction as truth, mm -hmm. which is a very convenient way to uh, bring in the protagonist of a conference that's starting at Trinity tomorrow, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, who, uh, who insists on literature as a source of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd be kind of true to my own discipline here within Trinity, I, I feel obligated to say this also the the point of view of Olga Tokarczuk, the Polish uh, Nobel Prize winner, who in her Nobel lecture said that uh, fiction is always a kind of truth. Um, so I wonder if that is a kind of a puzzle in how you position yourself uh, in these different projects mm -hmm. and, and, and potentially also part of the ethics. Yeah, issue. no, absolutely. Um, and I think I'd even push it a bit farther by saying it may be a kind of truth that we don't get anywhere else. Um, I'm not sure exactly how or why that's the case, but I, I have this instinctual sense that it is true. Um, and um, and uh, I think, it, you know, to some extent I've already described it a bit. Um, I don't think that the, the history of, of documents and, uh, and traditional historiography are going to be able to give us um, the same sort of of truth that that a, a novel like Leila Leilami's Moore's account can give us, and uh, and you know if history is a nightmare from which you know we might hope one day to wake up, um, it could be you know one way of sounding the alarm. I want to be mindful of time because it is past two, so we, we have uh, officially ended the event. And um, I'm sure you know, Jim can stick around if you have other burning questions, but just wanted to thank you all for coming again and thank Jim for, uh, for, for talking to us today and for, for your reading. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.